Hello, everybody. Today we're going to ask the question, what is God looking for in a person? What is God looking for in you? Uh, as we uh, look into that, we will look at Paul, Paul's election uh, of himself. He actually says in his writing that Paul didn't apply for the job that he got. So God's election of Paul, however, comes at a time when Paul was at the height of his sin. Paul is the chief of sinners. He admits it. He's the greatest sinner who ever lived. Or I guess we could say the worst sinner who ever lived, not greatest. And this uh, greatness of his sin or wickedness of Paul actually resulted from his pursuit of the law. He was pursuing the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And by that pursuit of the Mosaic Law, and albeit in a somewhat distorted way, he ended up becoming the worst sinner ever lived. And that tells us something. Could the law get someone to God? The answer is no. So we would say, well, you know, what is God looking for in a person? Paul wrote half the New Testament, so God must have been looking for something in Paul. There must have been something about Paul that he liked. So, if we say that, though, then we have to conclude that God loves the worst of us, and therefore we should be pretty wicked, and that way God will come to us. We should be as bad as we can. Uh, Actually, sadly, some people do conclude that. Paul discovered something, however, that we all have to fully know, and we're going to start to explore, have been exploring, but explore more today, And that is, there is no path that we can take, there is nothing that we can do to motivate God to come to us, to save us. God does come to every single person. God meets, He comes to every single person. God meets every one of us and then offers us salvation through His love, which is through His cross. To this chief of sinners, uh, Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul, he would become the one who would write the most and the highest about the divine love of God. Amazingly, that he would be the one that God would call to teach more than anybody what God's love really was. So we're uh, we're looking into something here that is uh, other earthly, outside of our world, from heaven of God, and it is alien to all things human and worldly. And so as we prepare ourselves and pray, we want to make sure that our hearts are truly open to uh, hearing all that God has in his word and, and being excited about God uh, leading us in the path of discovering something that is not of this world. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Your grace is equal with your love which is equal with the cross of Christ. You so loved the world that you gave your Son. We didn't ask for you to do this. Nobody did. When we fell, we hid ourselves from you, but yet you came. When we were uh, removed from the garden and cursed, you still came. You made us garments and covered us. You gave us Abraham Well, you gave us Noah, then you gave us Abraham, and through Abraham you gave us Christ, and through Christ you have given us the new covenant in his blood. You give and give, and none of us ask you to do it, and certainly none of us deserve it. Yet your love acts in an irrational, unfounded way, because it is who you are. So we ask, Father, that through your word in your spirit, that we would comprehend your love because we know, Father, it's coming, that you're going to ask us to love like exactly like you do. And how we could do that as creatures that we are, fallen creatures that we are, has to be absolutely miraculous. And so, Father, we ask for your guidance through your spirit that we may do what you have called us to do. We ask in Christ's name, amen.
So I think all of us uh, have felt imprisoned in our own selves. Uh, and this imprisonment is, is generally, for, for some people, it's just rampant sin that uh, controls us and causes us to search for desire and, 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 sin, and sinfully, and so we become slaves to desire. It's generally, that forms into some kind of an addiction, and we find a hard way to get out. We feel slave, slavish. Uh, for some of us, and Alan, could you give me a little more volume, please? Thank you. Just a little bit more. I know we should do this beforehand, but I keep forgetting. That is perfect. Thank you. Uh, we could be striving in the spiritual life and being as moral as we possibly can be and still feel enslaved in some way. That, and what I mean by that is you're living the spiritual life as best that you can, but you don't really, on a generally, general basis, feel happy. You don't feel free. In fact, you feel burdened. It could be for many reasons. The reasons Christians do not live free, and this is clear in the Scripture, is because we hold on to or continue to hold on to self. And when we continue to hold on to self, what I mean specifically, because all of us have let go of some parts of self, I would think, that more specifically, we hold on to certain parts of self. I say, I can't forgive that person. But then I'll say, you know what? I forgive a lot of people. I just can't forgive him or her. You're holding on, right? You're and you're you're short. You're holding yourself back. I uh, keep giving, giving in to certain addictions. But I say to myself, well, I, I, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that a lot of people do that I don't do. But I have this pet area and I keep giving into it. Uh, I keep getting angry and bitter and disappointed when circumstances don't go as planned. That's a big one for us. I plan this. It's supposed to happen this way. And it didn't. And I think to myself, I'm allotted. I keep getting angry and bitter, disappointed. And I say, but my plans are good. What I plan is good. And I could go on and on and on. And God doesn't is not going to ask us here. Can you imagine if God's love was limited? There'd not be one of us who was saved. We are holding on to parts of ourselves which are really parts of our old selves. We have to ask ourselves, in light of God's love now, why are we doing that? God does not love us because there is anything in us that warrants that love or is worthy of that love. So when we're holding on to parts of the old self, what are we actually holding on to? And God reasons with, with us about this. That, you know, if you get the reasoning, okay, God, I get it. There's nothing good about me, so I shouldn't hold on to it. That in no way translates into me easily letting it go. That doesn't happen. It takes time. And uh, as Christ said, if you faithfully serve me, your faith will... well. He basically said, faithfully serve me, count yourself an unworthy slave, and faithfully serve me. That was his answer to the disciples asking him to increase their faith. And this doctrine here is a big step. in See, because all these things you learn while you're serving Christ over your lifetime, uh, there are some parts of it that you learn. I mean, all of it contributes, but there are some parts that are are definitely life-changing. And, and I think um, it depends on the person. It depends on if you're ready for it. Or perhaps you already comprehend it. And what I mean is God's love, which is equal with the cross of Christ. Paul saw it no other way. Paul taught on agape more than anybody. Anybody before him or anybody since. I mean, there's gobs and gobs of books written about it now, but they're all based on Paul's writing. Uh, not just Paul, but Paul writes half the New Testament. So, 
Paul writes the most about it, God's love. But Paul also writes, and he makes it the centerpiece of all his doctrines, of all his theology, is the cross. And so we would ask ourselves, well, does Paul, uh, you know, the main themes of what Paul teaches, are there two of them? Is it, does Paul teach the cross and love? But we find out that Paul sees them as one and the same. The cross of Christ is the love of God. So from Christ, taught by the one who was the worst sinner who ever lived, we'll discover what agape love does from Christ's cross. What does agape love do? And this is the big thing for today. It gives itself away. It's astounding. Now, we're not ready to apply this to ourselves yet. We will, soon enough. But you've got to understand God's love for what it is. It completely gives itself away. We're talking about God here. He's the only one who truly has value. When we give ourselves away, what are we giving? Yeah, nothing. And and we find out that even if, you know, one, and we'll probably talk about it tomorrow, that whatever we sacrifice to God... You know, does he need it? Like of all the animal sacrifices, the millions and millions of gallons of blood that were spilt in Israel uh, for the atonement of sin and for the forgiveness of sin and all the sacrifices that people have made uh, to serve God and give them themselves, what have they really given to God? Uh, you know, nothing. <laughs> he doesn't need anything. And so, and we have to iron that all out. They say, well, what in the world am I doing it for then? That's a great question. Great question. And we have to answer those questions. Or we could just go through the motions and wait till we get there. Uh, yeah, I prefer not to live the Christian life that way because I want to know. And I hope you do. And I want you to know. But there's so much of it I don't know. <laughs> So I'm going to hope you know what I don't know and that I know what you know and then we'll all know. I don't know. That was pretty good. That was off the cuff. Uh, God's love is not self-evident. So like in our uh, Declaration of Independence, not Constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Right? And that, the, that all are created equal and are endowed with certain inalienable rights. Uh, that is self-evident. No man, as, as I think it was Jefferson who said, no man is a horse that should be ridden by another man. Um, and so, yeah, you know, that's true. But when it comes to God's love, this is not self-evident. It's expounded in Scripture in the very paradox that it is. It is bizarre and insane. And that's why people are more than willing to have it be something that it's not. And we'll spend a class or two on that. And what is it the Eros love that has overwhelmed the whole world? People are willing, Christians are really willing to accept that Eros love is God's love, that it's Christian love. Because Eros love makes sense to the mind. God's love does not. When we get a glimpse of God's love, and all we have to do is read these passages that we'll see today, and then we've seen a glimpse. And if we pursue that glimpse, we will start to see something that is incredible, and then God is going to say, now come closer. And what we're going to find out, and I think we figured this out pretty quick, that if I'm going to get closer, i got to give up my life. I can't approach this love. And what I mean by approach is, means I understand it, I see it. I can't see it and understand it without doing it. And I don't mean doing to understand. I mean, when you see it, you do it. If you don't do it, you don't see it. And a lot of us, and I've been so guilty of this, that I say, you know, yeah, that's a little too close. 
You mean, I, I would, for me to get closer to this, to understand, to see it more clearly, I would have to give up a lot. And I'm stuff I'm holding on to. And God's like, when? Come to me. How did Christ describe it when we follow him? Pick up your what? What does that mean? You know, the cross of Christ is the love of God. The cross of Christ is the death of himself. The cross of Christ is the absolute giving away of his entire self to the service of those who hated him and were his enemies. That's how Paul writes it. Paul saw this. Not just sinners, yes, sinners, but ungodly, wicked, and enemies of God. And Christ gave himself away for them. And, and so, and what happens with this is I say, well, that can't, that, you know, I mean, that's too much. It's too much. This is what people do. That's too much. So they back away from it or they change it. And so what, what is a, a very popular change to this is a limited atonement. In other words, Christ only died for those who would be saved, and they were saved when Christ died for them. And that's a John MacArthur doctrine that's very popular in our world. It's not, it doesn't originate from him by any means. But the limited atonement is, you know, uh, it, it, it's the idea that Christ did not sow where he knew it wouldn't grow. Even that was poetic. I'm on a roll today. Uh, but we see in the parable of the sower that more than the majority of the seed ends up not growing. We also see in the parable of the wheat and the tares that there's, there's so many tares that if they were to be pulled up, they'd pulled up the wheat with them. So there's, Christ said, look, just let it grow. We'll deal with it at the end. That doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me either. And that's why I love it so much. But yet, if you were to apply this love in your life, even a little, you would see how absolutely magnificent it is. Because look, if this love is God, and it is, God is love, God is agape, that to do it would reap the fruit of it, and to reap the fruit of it would be to reap the fruit of God, and how could that not be really good? I mean, it works out really well. To not evaluate, like what we talked about yesterday, not evaluate people. And then, based on your evaluation, give. Not to calculate first and then give. Not to see what I can afford. When I say afford, I mean giving time and energy and everything, service, as well as money, to calculate first to see what I should do, what they deserve, and that's not it. That is Eros love, that's worldly love, and the whole Christian world has adopted it as God's love, and it ain't. God's love is spontaneous. What that means is it doesn't look for anything in man to motivate it. It just does. It loves. It's not waiting to see if there's something in that person that would motivate it. Spontaneous means that it just does. It's unmotivated. Agape love is unmotivated, which means that there is, it has nothing to do with mankind. It is not what man is like. Love is what God is like, not what man is like. And so it's unmotivated. And saying, I really got to get myself. No, you just have to be like him. Love is creative. This is one of my favorite parts to it. Uh, love gives worth. If you're loved by God, you have worth. Without God, you have no worth. You and I have no worth. You say, well, that's impossible. You know, we're the most complex, smartest creature on planet Earth. But we're all of us as fallen sinners are destined for the lake of fire. 
what's our worth other than judgment? There's nothing in us. But then when we're loved, if you accept this love through faith in Christ as your Savior, then all of a sudden God gives to you blessings that make you very worthwhile. And then lastly, love initiates. Love initiates our relationship with him. How do we get to God? Do we repent? Do we confess? Do we follow the law? Do we try as hard as we can to be as moral as we can? And then God will come to us? There's no way. From man's side, there's no way. Man's side of the cross is the propitiation of Christ, the only way. And propitiation means that Christ is the only one who could satisfy the justice of the Father on behalf of our sin. And so there's no way for us to get to God, no matter what we do. So then we turn to Paul. Go to Acts chapter 9. The calling of Paul is a prime example of how irrational, unmotivated, and spontaneous God's agape love is. I think it's too easy for us to conclude that, you know, God called Paul or Saul of Tarsus because, well, God wanted to show off. You know, he wanted to change the worst sinner. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going to try and read God's mind here. I wouldn't say that that is not a motivation in God's mind. But we wouldn't say that. I mean, God called you and he called me. Uh, but he also called the worst sinner ever and at the height of his sin. When Paul is called here, he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus. Uh, Paul is at the height of his power when it comes to persecuting the church. He has already greatly persecuted a whole manner of people in Jerusalem uh, Stephen, the deacon Stephen, was stoned right in front of, of Saul. And Saul gave hearty approval to it. And they persecuted the church so much that many in the church had fled Jerusalem. Fleeing Jerusalem, a lot of them went north. as There's really not much to the south. The south is desert, so they, they flew north. And Paul headed north to go get them. He's not going to give up. And so God meets him on the way. So, and so let's read it. It's always fun to read. Acts 9.1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. These are kind of like warrants that will allow him to persecute and murder, as you see here, Christians in the city of Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, to Christianity both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The doubling of the name means a lot, especially to... And Paul would later, when he relates the story in Acts 26... He says that God spoke to him in Hebrew. And so Saul, Saul in Hebrew, this em- the doubling of the name means emphasizing. You, Saul, your na- who's he named after? First king of Israel. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, where the king of Israel was from. This great man. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, to, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. It all goes down pretty quick. Uh, and, you know, we might ask ourselves, well, why doesn't God appear to everybody like this? Wouldn't everybody be saved? I would think probably not. 
but I, I have no, I don't weigh in on that. I used to wonder that, and I don't anymore, because when God operates in his love, he can do whatever he wants. You know, we're, we have to be grateful for his graciousness and what he does and thank him for it and adore him for it and not try to figure out details about things that we couldn't possibly figure out. We spend time missing out on things when we're trying to see behind curtains that God has not opened. This happens when Paul is at the height of his sin, the greatest of sinners. Again, by following the law, as he writes about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9, and last of all, and he's talking about the appearances of Christ after his resurrection, uh, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. That word fit is axios. It means worthy. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul's story is not that of a proud Pharisee who got his life transformed and he became humble. Is that it? Uh. It is rather the story of a sincere and very ardent Pharisee who in his pursuit of righteousness became the chief of sinners. You can't miss that. In his pursuit of the law, in his pursuit of righteousness, totally convinced that these Christians are dangerous, he became the chief of sinners. And in the very midst of his sin, Jesus appears to him and calls him. And then tells him, this one who said, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. He calls Saul and then says, I've got work for you to do. What is that work? Saul is going to have to bear God's name. This word bear, it's, uh, the Greek word is bastazo, uh, where we get bastard from. It means to carry and support and often it has a connotation of carrying something difficultly. So look at 9.15. This is after God says to Ananias, go meet Paul. Ananias is like, uh, <clears throat> you know Paul killing Christians. And God says, go. And uh, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear. Again, bastazo, it means to support or carry. To bear my name. What a burden. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Uh, so, yeah, this calling upon Paul is amazing. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, well, you know, there's, there's so much here to learn about Paul's life. When you learn about him, you learn about yourself because all of us are called. None of us applied for the job. Um, and, you know, I mean, we believe by faith, but your spiritual gift, the ministry God gives to you, the work that he has predestined for you to do, none of it have you chosen. He chose it for you. And we are also to bear God's name. Now, what does it mean to do that? Uh, Paul's whole ministry is going to be centered on the cross of Christ. His whole ministry is centered on it. All of his doctrines are centered on it. All, right? All of his theology. So Paul's theology has as its center the cross of Christ. <clears throat> and as we remember for this man who's a Pharisee, uh, his, what his life was before his conversion in that he pursued the works of the law and he realized now, uh, after becoming blinded by Christ and getting his sight back and then heading into the ministry, almost immediately, he starts ministering in Damascus, the very place he went to arrest Christians, that the pursuit of the law did not lead anyone to any real relationship with God. We say, well, you know, and I'm not going to get into it now, but we will in the future, soon. You know, then, you know, why, what about this love of God in the law? 
Well, you can pursue the law and not love God because the law is a bunch of rules. Anybody can follow rules if they're motivated enough. It doesn't mean that you love God or it doesn't mean that you worship God or even have faith in God. And we see several people in the Old Testament who do just that. They're actually priests in the temple that don't believe in God at all. Uh, And... So the the law, the works of the law, the law itself is no pathway to a relationship with God. What Paul finds out, as we all must find out, is that it's actually quite the opposite. That we can't get to God at all. That God has to come to us. And when he does come to us, he brings with him, not conditions, mm -mm, not works to do, Not hoops to jump through. Not anything to do. But accept His love of you. And it's actually too much. For a lot of people, obviously, it's too much. It's to accept God's love means to accept Jesus Christ because they are one in the same. And uh, for us as Christians who have already accepted Him, now God says... (laughs) And we're going to see why we have to make this transition. But now God says to us, you love as I love. And I say, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, God. You know what I really like is being the recipient of your love? I like that. But actually giving it to others? Now you want me to be like you and give it to others? Uh, That sounds impossible. We'll see why that is. So God opened the way to us to come to us by setting forth Christ crucified as a means of atonement. Paul came to see this clearly. The fellowship with God was no longer legal as if it ever was. The fellowship with God was not in following the law, but fellowship with God was in accepting his love and responding in kind. Does that mean we're lawless? Oh, heck no. Heck no. Actually, we're... Uh, the law has been fulfilled for us, and as Christ said, um, we are going beyond it, actually. Like loving your enemies. <laughs> so, Paul writes a lot about the cross, as we said. It's the center of his doctrines. Paul also writes a lot about love. But in Paul's mind, they are not two points. They are the same. Go to Romans chapter 5. There's many passages that we could look at that show us this. But this one is the best one. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, God died for the young... Uh, sorry, Christ. Well, he is God. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So there's our first description of us, ungodly. And Christ died. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. The righteous man is someone who is thought righteous, you know, is righteous. The good man is someone who is not only righteous, but does good deeds. And, you know, we've seen this. It happens that people who are champions of whatever cause, others will join them and put their lives on the line. People in the military do it all the time. Uh, And so, you know, you do so for a good man. All right. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there's the second uh, description of us as sinners. The first one was ungodly. Verse 9, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So here's the third description uh, that of you is enemy. You and me, this is of all of us. So ungodly, sinners, and enemies. We throw in there weak. Uh, and so, notice in verse, 
Where are we? Where's uh, Verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? So Romans 5.8 tells us that the love of God is the cross of Christ. Right? God loves. Now we could say in John 3.16, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his son. But uh, it, here it's a little more clear, clear that it is the death of Christ that's in view. And so God's love is demonstrated by the death of Christ. So Paul's doctrines, as we said, of one center is the cross. But to Paul, the cross is agape. God's love, God's agape, is the cross. This perfectly agrees with Jesus' teaching of the gospel in the gospels. Uh, which teach us that um, that what Christ said was that the, that he was sent by the Father, that it was the love of the Father who sent the Son, and so it's no different here with Paul's teaching of the gospel that it is the love of God in Christ Jesus. So that's the love of the Father in Christ. We see in other passages that it's also the love of Christ, and they come together in the fact that well. First uh, John three sixteen, we know love by this that he laid down his life for us. All right, so John agrees with Paul that the love of God is the death of Christ. Now, this the ramifications of this for us is incredible. Without the cross, we should never know the love of God nor would we know its deepest meaning. And conversely, without God's love, Christ wouldn't have gone to the cross. And so it causes the cross, and it draws us to the cross. And then, God says, now, I want you not only to learn of it or kind of see it, I want you to understand it so intimately that you live it. And I say, whoa, wait, so what does that mean? You can't, the cross is the ultimate of it, right? If you want to define, anybody says, what's God's love? You say the cross of Christ. Because you could define it in a hundred words, but rather than ramble on with words, say, Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. That's the love of God. Paul said to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. And then he says to them, for I determined, uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. Then in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? This is the center of, of all of his work, the crucifixion of Christ. And so what does this tell us about agape? If agape is the cross of Christ, and it is, then agape gives itself away and sacrifices itself to the utmost. Agape gives itself away and sacrifices itself to the utmost. And this, to whom? Everybody. Well, shouldn't it be to some and not to others? No. To everybody. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that going to cost me everything? Yes. Yes, it is. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. What else did he say? Lose your life and you'll find it. What else did he say? Lose your life and deny yourself daily and you'll find it. What does he mean? You'll find me. You'll find my love. You'd say, well, I I really know Christ, but I don't love people like he does. You're on. You might be on your way. I'm not saying you're not because all of us got a long way to go. But it's clear here that this is what agape is. In our main passage, Paul says, your agape to the Thessalonians who are only saved for a manner of months. They're less than a year saved. 
He says to them, your agape superabounds. You know, it makes me, you know, was my agape superabounding a year into salvation? Heck no. Is it superabounding now? Has the world known this love? Has the church known this love? Have we known this love? We knew a love, and it was easy for us to transpose that love into the love that God says he has. And to do that, we have to just gloss over passages like this and not just think about them all that much. Right? You do a few good things for a few people, you be nice, you you just do what's necessary. That's Eros love. It's calculated. What do I got to do, God, to get by so that you don't smash me? You know, like, how much do I got to (laughs) do? The agape revealed in the death of Christ is the love of the Father. It's the same love that Christ has for us. It's the same love. If apart from the revelation of Christ and his crucifixion, no one ever knows this love. And some, as I said, some can know of it, but to go far in it, it costs you everything. And a lot of people aren't willing to, a lot, I think, a lot of people are not willing to make that sacrifice. And, you know, it's not as if God is needing a sacrifice from us, because he's not. We think of all the things that sacrifices do. Sacrifices are things that we lay at the altar of God in the hope of getting something back. God laughs, really, at it. I mean, he gave it to Israel. The sacrifices to Israel were really things to teach them that there had to be a substitution for their sins, that someone other than themselves was going to pay for their sins. And that's what the blood always represented, was the substitutionary death of someone else who they came to know to be the Messiah. But, you know, when it comes to us laying down things, we say we're going to get things. But you're not really getting anything that the Father hasn't already blessed you with. You already have them. The reason why he says you've got to let go of this and this and this is because they're getting in the way of you seeing it. You can't do both at the same time. That's why we, you know, people think that, well, Jesus was a romantic and that's why he ate and dined with the sinners because he was more attracted to the sinners than he was to the Pharisees. And that's completely untrue. You know, if the Bible said that, that's one thing, but it doesn't say that at all. What Christ saw in the sinners was a need. What Christ saw in the Pharisees were people who didn't think they had a need. Yet he ministered to them also, but not in the same way as he did to the sinners. Look at Romans 8, 37. Romans 8.37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor depth, sorry, height first, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what I would emphasize in this lesson is, see that love of God, where is it? In Christ Jesus our Lord. That's not by mistake. And so again, in Romans 5, that the love of God is the manifest, is manifested itself, or the love of God is demonstrated. Let's see how he puts it again. God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So is the death of Christ. And this is why it's a new love. New to the church. It's new because we have Christ now. 
And having him means that we can see this love for exactly what it is. So nowhere is the spontaneous, unmotivated, irrational love of God displayed. We could say it was somewhat irrational, actually really irrational in the calling of Saul of Tarsus or of Jesus eating with sinners. But what about God giving his son to the world to die for their sins when they're his enemies and they're ungodly and they're sinners? Uh, That is the pinnacle of it. Absolute pinnacle. Spontaneous, unmotivated. What do we mean by spontaneous and unmotivated? I'm glad you asked. Spontaneous means that it doesn't look for anything in man to motivate it. God looked down at the earth and said, oh no, look what they did. Boy, they're doomed. I feel bad for them. Yeah, that's a human response. <laughs> yeah, if your kids who you love to death, they, you know, they, they go astray, you, you might feel bad for them after you get over your anger and you want to kill them. But, uh, you know, you feel bad for them. If it's a human response. We don't see that in God. I mean, if it's written, it's written. But it's not written that God felt bad. Uh, unmotivated means that love is God, or God is love. I mean, it's spontaneous from Him, and it initiates. No one asked for Christ to come. He didn't come because anyone asked. So, the spontaneous and unmotivated nature of God's love is displayed at Calvary, and... You know, what's the first thing he says from the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. While they're mocking them. While they're jeering at them. All of it prophesied that it would go down like that. He knew it would. Paul says it over and over here in our passage. Christ died for sinners, for the ungodly, for his enemies. And every one of us was all three of those things. So, as we continue reading and learning, we discover that this love of God, which is the cross of Christ, is also equated with the grace of God. That word is used many times, mostly taught by Paul. We can always say Paul mostly taught it because he wrote half the New Testament, so it's easy to say. But... uh, The grace of God in multiple passages is equated with the love of God and the cross of Christ. And so all of them come to man uh, at the same time. And that makes sense because grace means favor, that's unmerited, and love gives unmerited. And God is going to challenge us to do this. And if we don't do it, the consequences are that you're not going to see as much of God as you could. Uh, you're going to spend your life in slavery to things that you didn't need to be. And then there's the judgment seat of Christ where we're recompensed for the deeds that we've done, whether good or bad. I would very confidently say that if, if I don't live the love of Christ those deeds that I've done that are good, I don't, know, I don't think I'm going to have too many of them. And by the way, it's not what I think is good. It's what he thinks is good. He's the only one who has the eye clear enough to discern what is good. It would have to be purely good. When I think of that, I wonder if he, I even have one. And, you know, uh, and, and so on and on. And, and this becomes... You know, God's not going to motivate us by um, threatening us. He doesn't do that. You know, most of us, you know, if we if we do fairly well in the spiritual life, we don't suffer grave consequences. I don't see Christians, you know, under the curses of the law in Deuteronomy 28, or is it 29? No, it's 28. He starts with the curses. Yeah, you know, covered in boils, skin diseases, and all of that. And so then Christ would, 
then tell us to pick up our crosses and follow him. And just like he said here, you know, your cross, what does this mean? I've heard this phrase interpreted in watered-down ways that now I look back upon and I say, I can't believe I believe that. You know, I was taught years ago that pick up your cross meant to just follow God's plan for your life, that the cross was Christ's plan and you have your own plan. And and then the caveat would be put in that surely, you know, you're not called to go to the cross, so it can't be as sacrificial as his. Um, see, you know what happens there when people do that? It's human rationality trying to make sense out of something that's senseless. <laughs> this is senseless. And look, if you think this makes sense, then I don't think you really see it for what it is. Pick up your cross means to give up your entire life in the service of Christ. Everything. Everything. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, well, look at that, it's right here in my post notes. I always throw in a couple extra notes just in case I don't have enough. Can you imagine that? I'm always going over an hour. Uh, Matthew 5, this is at the end of this section. It's the end of the section where in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He does this like four times. And the last one's about love. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you will be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more, do you, what, what more are you? Really, how extraordinary are you? Or how are you extraordinary? Do not even the unbelievers do the same? So, right, okay. We get it. To be sons of our Father, we have to love like our Father loves. That's his point. It's very simple. And then he says this. This is where he says it. In the context of love your enemies, he says you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the context where he says be perfect. And this is repeated by Paul in Ephesians 5, that you're to be imitators of God in love. And the example he gives of love is Christ crucified. And so, we, just to read it for you, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And that is what we're all called to be. And that is picking up your cross. Picking up your cross is being perfect like your father is perfect. Being an imitator of God in love. Just as Christ sacrificed himself and gave himself away for you. For you we're to give ourselves away for others. And to actually try and make the impact of that lesser, we've mixed in with this agape love, which is otherworldly and crazy, uh, human forms of love that make more sense to us, cost us far less. And then we call that God's love. We say, well, that's God's, God's love, and we define it as that. And what we've done when we do that is ruin it. Well, we'll never know it. We'll never know anything about it. Pick up your cross means to love irrationally. Give yourself away. Sacrifice yourself to the utmost. So, uh, all of us have got to give everything away. All right. Where are we going to give it to? usually the pastor says me, you know, right? And, and, and you have to ask the pastor, well, what are you giving up? You know, nothing. Um, 
it's pretty funny. I, I'm, I'm listening to this book about the Apollo 11. So Apollo 11 is taking off from Cape Canaveral. It is in July something, 1969. I was only three years old. So you guys, right, you watched it on TV. But, uh, at, you know, just as it's about to go off, it is the event in the whole world. There's people there protesting. It was actually Christian people protesting from a certain church. And their beef was that all of this money, which back in 1969 dollars, it was billions and billions to get this rocket off the ground. They said that could have been spent here. And somebody said to this man who was pastoring the church, he said, it was spent here. There's no dollars going to the moon. I said, there's like 300,000 people who have worked on this program. All the money went to them. It was spent here. I don't know what made me think of that. That who, you know, who are we going to give it to? Here's what you do. We give everything away in our hearts first. You know, some in the past have concluded by this truth that we need to give everything away and go live in the desert. The monks. I ain't doing that. It's too hot. No, but you give everything away in your heart first. Now, you can say I've given everything away in my heart. Look, God looks upon your heart very clearly. So you can lie to people. Don't lie to him. Give everything away in your heart first. And then, when the time comes, or if it comes, and God says, give that away, you've already done it. No problem. Here it is. Whatever it is. I've already let go of it. Now, God may not ask you to give it away. Whatever it is. He's definitely going to ask us all to give something. Time, ministry, money, all of it. Service, love, compassion, comfort, encouragement, whatever, witnessing of the gospel. We're all called to do this. But how much and when and... Here's the other thing. To whom? To whom am I giving it? In my heart, I've given it away to everybody, anybody, anybody. Enemies, friends, loved ones. People I don't even know. Because why? Agape love gives itself away. And I have to give it. So we give it away in our hearts first. And then when God calls us to give it, we say, thank you, Lord. Now I get to follow through on something that I've already given away. I get to see the fruit of that. And hence... Agape love is spontaneous. We learn this actually in Acts chapter 2. Peter said that Jesus was given to the world before the foundation of the earth. That the cross was predetermined. And so Christ was given to the world millions of years before he actually would be. Actually, remind one final. I know, and I thought I was going to end early for you too. Isn't that funny? I guess I can't. But uh, they interview the astronauts on Apollo 11, and they say, "Well, you know, are you nervous when you get into the capsule and everything starts, and here comes the countdown?" And they said, "You know, we've been training and training and training and training and training for this for years." So one of the astronauts said, well, it's kind of like when you plan a trip. You're worried. Are you worried? Sure. Is the alarm going to go off? Am I going to get a flat tire before I get to the airport? Uh, Am I going to make it to the airport? Am I going to forget something? Forget the tickets? Forget the passport? All of that. But as soon as you're on the plane and the doors close, that's it. You made it. And you're not nervous anymore. He said, by the time he said, by the time we got to the tip of that rocket and got into Apollo 11, after all the hype and all the training, he said, all of us were like, shut the damn door, let's go, because they were just sick of it, <laughs> so sick of it. 
in a minor way. That's a nice illustration to this. We're training our whole lives to be like Christ. When the time comes and that person, that event, that situation is right in front of us and we get the opportunity, we should be like so excited that we can finally do it. But the preparation for this comes beforehand. Learning about God's love, accepting it, and by accepting it, God is going to show us that once he invites us in, we're accountable to do it. And we'll see why that's necessary. And then once we have the opportunity to do it, we should be rejoicing and thankful because we've been wanting to do this for a long time. All right. Now I'm over. Believe that. I should have ended 10 minutes ago. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us. How immeasurable, Father. How irrational that you have done what you have done in our behalf. May we see that love. And just at the start here, Father, before we do anything with it, show us it clearly and purely what it is. And then we'll be ready to do. We ask in Christ's name, amen.